Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This podcast is brought to you by Tethered. One of the challenges for me and all my gear and what I take with me is always trying to stay public land legal. And what I mean by this is a lot of times when you're hanging gear, you know, the only way or the most common way is to use some type of screw-in mechanism. In the past, I started making... Um, you know, tethers out of, out of paracord that I could hang stuff on in the tree. That way I wasn't having to screw anything into the tree and so forth. But tethered up their game as they always do and thought of the public land mobile hunter and their needs. And they've come out with the his strap, which I recently started using, which is a seven foot long piece of webbing that is daisy chained. And, and it also pairs nicely with their his pro pack, which is a combination of some S beaners as well as a pro clip. And so I hang everything from my bow to my backpack to uh, binos to rangefinder, whatever the case is that I'm bringing into the tree with me, I use this hiss strap for that and those various carabiners and S hooks. So if you want to learn more about either the hiss strap or the hiss pro pack, or do you want to learn about their saddle and predator platform setup, head to tetherednation.com and check them out. First thing I do in the morning before a hunt is, of course, I have to have my morning coffee. And I'm sure most of you out there probably feel the same. Make sure you're filling your mug with Skull Brew Coffee as it is the only coffee company that is both 2% for conservation certified and, of course, donates 10% of their profits to conservation organizations who are helping us to secure the future of our wild places. So head to SkullBrewCoffee.com and choose between three killer roasts of coffee and know that you are supporting conservation with every sip. Hello and welcome to the Truth From Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 141. Today we're wrapping up our DIY report mini-series with Don Higgins and discussing his in-season approach to killing big deer. So stay tuned. All right, all right. Happy Wednesday to all of you out there. Hope you're doing well. Hope some of you had a chance to wrap a tag around a nice white tail here since uh, we had this nice cold front come through for the statewide opener in PA. As most of you know, I've been in the in the timber for a few weeks now with the uh, special regs opening here in the area that I live in. But I was waiting with, uh, with bated breath for this uh, cold front to come through and actually took a, a half day on Friday to get out. And uh, to get out and try to get some uh, get some extra timber time in, which was uh, which was good. I, I ended up hitting the swamp, uh, headed back into there. I was really kind of just looking to see if I could fill the freezer with some uh, with some freezer meat, 
uh, had an opportunity, but unfortunately the opportunity came through at right at last last light. I was losing losing light. Uh, a doe came rolling through. She hit the small opening that I had to try to take a shot, and uh, as soon as she hit that opening, she turned hard left and gave me a really hard quartering away shot, and the fact that I didn't have a ton of light um, and it was going to be a tough shot to begin with, I was at full draw and let down because I just didn't want to make a, make a questionable shot, and I thought it better that I that I just kind of leave the place, uh, you know, non-disturbed, if you will, um, rather than take a questionable shot and have to spend a lot of time, you know, traipsing through there, probably, you know, an extensive track job. And that just first and foremost, um, you know, it, in my opinion, it was a it was a questionably ethical shot to take in, in, in the first place. So I thought better of it, drew down and lived to uh, live to let her live to hunt another day. And then was really kind of excited for um, this past Saturday, which, you know, was having a really nice temp drop. I think the high on Saturday was maybe 61 and it was going to be about 42 or 39 to 42 degrees. I don't remember exactly what it was Saturday morning. Uh, and my plan was I had a north wind and my plan was to get back in the one area where I had the one deer on camera that was giving me some morning activity and, and some opportunities. Uh, he was showing himself and shooting light in the morning in this particular area. And, uh, so I had some really high hopes headed, headed into that hunt, got in there again, super quiet, stealthy. It was a piece of public land, um, set up, you know, I, I couldn't have made a better entrance, you know, didn't make a, a stinking sound or a, a single peep during the, during the entrance and, you know, getting all set up and stuff and, uh, did not see a single deer. Now that's not surprising to me. This where I'm set up, it's, I'm probably either going to see the one I'm looking for, or I'm probably not going to see anything. Um, but then, you know, I, I don't know, it was probably a little after first light. I think, you know, sunrise was right around 6.56, close to 7 o'clock, something like that. And it was shortly thereafter, I heard a ripping grunt uh, behind me over my right shoulder. And it was probably anywhere from like 50 to 75 yards away-ish, um, which kind of, uh, which was cool. Uh, the deer were definitely fired up. And then this time of year, there's a lot of, you know, uh, nuts and stuff falling out of the tree. And so I kept kind of hearing stuff crashing into the ground, which, you know, there were squirrels jumping from branch to branch and stuff like that and knocking nuts out of the tree and stuff like that. And I heard some of that going on. And then, I you know, where that grunt came from in that general area, I kind of heard similar stuff going on. But I heard stuff that I thought was more than just um, more than squirrels messing around. Like, you, you know, you spend some time. It's always hard this time of year because my my senses aren't all tuned in, um, necessarily as far as like knowing what I'm hearing, you know, being able to distinguish between squirrels messing around and something that might hear like, it sound like a deer or, or whatever the case is. Um, and even visually too, you know, it always takes me a few hunts to kind of get my eyes retrained to pick out like the smallest movements and stuff like that, that will be a deer in the, in the distance kind of, you know, going through the brush or through the timber or whatever. And so I kept listening. Then all of a sudden I heard the distinct sound of, um, of antlers hit one another. And so there was some, you know, I wouldn't say it was aggressive by any means, but there was some gentle sparring happening, um, in that general area. And then I heard another grunt, which was got a little further away, but it sounded the same. So it sounded like it was the same deer. And then, you know, maybe 30 minutes later, I now had him on the right, on my, still on my right hand side, which technically would have been my East, um, and just a little North. So he was a little Northeast of me. Um, and then I didn't hear anything, um, you know, pretty deep grunt. So, you know, look, I'm not a grunt expert by any stretch of the imagination, but it definitely wasn't a doe bleat. It was definitely, you know, it definitely sounded like a buck. Was it the one I was after? Who knows? Um, you know, I, I can say he is one of 
uh, three deer that have been using that general area that I have on camera. And, uh, I know for certain that one of the deer that had been coming through there, he was an, he was an up and coming, uh, eight point that I had on camera. I know that he got killed. I saw on social media that he was, he was killed a couple of days ago in on that particular public land piece. So the two other shooters were still in that, in that, uh, in that area. Um, so was it him? I don't know. You know, do I think it was him? If I had to guess, I would say, you know, maybe 60% certainty it was him or maybe the other shooter. Uh, but needless to say, he didn't come through. And I ended up getting down probably around, you know, 930 or so. And then I just put on a scout to kind of see if if there was any new sign that was laid down, any hot sign I could maybe, you know, set up on for um, for the evening. And so I made a quick scout through. And uh, I ended up finding one area that I think I want to set up on at some point or probably be an evening hunt. I don't think I would hunt this area in the morning in October here only because I don't know what time deer might be traveling through there. Uh, but there was a one area on this property that, you know, there's, um, there's a few acorns that, that have been dropping like on the property as I was scouting, but nothing really significant, kind of small acorns too. And I don't know. And again, I'm not a, a, a an acorn expert, but it looked kind of, um, what I'd say is young or juvenile. Maybe it's a tree that's getting its first crop on or its second crop on or whatever. But in the one corner of the property, there are some sizable acorns that are dropping and a lot of them. Um, and it's in this one kind of concentrated area. And it's not surprisingly where I had found a bunch of sign when I scouted it this past spring, uh, a bunch of old rubs and stuff there. So I went to that area and was looking around. There weren't any new rubs that were laid down. Uh, there weren't any scrapes along that area. It's along the edge of a swamp, so there's an edge there. So I anticipate there's going to be, you know, deer movement in that general area to begin with, uh, just because of the edge and the sign that I'd pre- seen from previous years. So I think my plan, I'll try to, you know, see if I can get the right wind. And, and there, it's like I'm probably going to need some type of west wind to hunt that, so my scent's blowing into the into the swamp. And, uh, and they actually would be able to scent check almost that entire property because it, it would be, or at least that piece of it, because uh, the wind would be kind of covering the entire one side of the property blowing to, the, to blowing toward the east. So I think that that's my plan uh, for that setup is I might try to put a hunt on in, uh, there in the evening. And then Saturday evening, I went out. I was back to the swamp because I had a good wind for that. And uh, I think I kind of started figuring out why I'm not getting as much, you know, camera activity there. Um, I did a little drive around because there was a bean field, or I'm sorry, there's a couple fields around there that last year didn't have anything in it. It was all just either, you know, they were hay fields essentially. And when I say didn't have anything in it, then I mean they didn't have any, you know, cash ag crops. There was no corn, there was no beans or anything like that in it. And then this field, the one when I say large field, it's large for this area because remember I'm kind of in a suburban suburban area. The fields maybe 20, I think it was 24 acres whenever I, you know, edged it on, on Onyx just to kind of see how big it is. And this year it's in corn and it's still standing. So, and this is maybe if you go to the back corner of the swamp before you get to private, you're, you're like 400 yards away from that cornfield. And all the movement I've been seeing on the camera has been different than what it was last year, where most of them were kind of paralleling the entire property. This year they're moving you know, what would be, you know, would be east and west and heading to the west, which is where the corn, where, where the corn is at. So I think that that's kind of changed some things up. You know, where, are there some bucks that are kind of hanging out in that corn and maybe close by to that corn? I, I don't know, uh, but that's different than, than what was in there last year. So, you know, I'm just trying to dissect and figure out what might be changing. So I might have to traipse and head back into that corner. Um, and that might be where I start to see some sign and stuff like that. Cause there's not a ton of sign necessarily in the swamp right now, which is a little unusual compared to last year. There were some rubs and stuff laid down, never a ton of scrapes. I think predominantly because it's, it's, it's pretty wet in most, in most areas. 
Um, and I don't know that the scrapes would last very long if they were if they were laid down. That being said, there is one corner uh, in the first trans- transition of the swamp where I saw a bunch of rubs pop up last year. And I, that in that corner, I started making a video and I ran out of ran out of juice to f- to finish the video. But there was when I was going through there checking cameras a couple weeks ago, I was just kind of doing another walk through and seeing if there was anything new that has changed or anything new that I missed or didn't see last year. And I found a buck bed, and it's in it's in this one corner of the swamp where I kind of anticipated if I were a buck, where would I where would I stay? And that was where I kind of thought you know, a buck might be bedded. And sure enough, there was a bed. Now it wasn't in the swamp. It was right on the edge of it. So then it kind of got me to thinking, I was like, you know, this past year, last year, the other thing that was different from last year is I think last year we had a really wet spring and entire summer. And even into the fall, it rained like crazy last year, more than I can ever remember in my life. This year we had a really wet spring and a wet partial summer and then really the past like month or so it's really dried up and we haven't really had a whole lot of rain and we had some late hot days in September and stuff. And so I was hiking in to uh, to hunt yesterday and just wanted to kind of, as I was hiking in, I was kind of still hunting slash scouting, you know, my way through till I got to, to where I wanted to set up. And I was walking toward where this bed was because I was like, if I see sign had been laid down, then I know it's been laid down like in the past like week, you know. And if that's the case near this bed, then I was just going to set up and hunt there. And there was there was nothing there. And I was pushing the envelope, getting kind of close. And sure enough, I heard something jump. Boom. I saw all the brush shake in the swamp. And, you know, I'm, I'm set on almost certain that it was a buck. I don't know the caliber. I didn't see it, but it was a single deer that was bedded in the swamp. And so... You know, I kind of took a page from, you know, my conversations in the past with old old Zach from the hunting public and, you know, that you'd never want to bump a buck. It's, you know, not your ideal situation, but that's the best intel that you ever get because you know where he was, when he was there, what wind and it's real intelligence. It's first person intelligence. So, you know, as bad as it might have seemed that I I bumped him out of there, I decided to kind of walk back into where his bed was at. And because the, the swamp has receded a little bit because of all the drier weather we have, there are some prime bedding spots that are closer to the edge of that swamp where last year it would have pushed the deer further in and they would have had to travel on the edge of the swamp where this year, once I got in there, I found he had two beds that were in there. And then when I started walking around just a little bit on the edge, there's almost like a secondary trail system that runs inside of that swamp right along the edge of it where the water has receded back because we haven't had a whole lot of rain this, you know, the past, you know, four weeks or so. And so I think part of the reason why I'm also not getting intel on cameras in there is because all things being equal, they're staying in the cover to cover to travel. Not only that, there's plenty of browse in there for them. So they never really have to get up and get out of that stuff to, to find food until after dark. And they can travel pretty much the entire length of that property in that, in that thick, nasty stuff. So that was a big learning piece for me yesterday. So I'm thinking about my hunts coming up. I think that, you know, if it stays dry, I think I'm going to try to hunt that bed, you know, uh, the bed that I found yesterday, knowing that, you know, he's probably whatever deer's in there. It, it, look, it might be a forky, who knows. Um, but I'm going to probably hunt close to that bed or I'm going to have to kind of change my setup from last year where I was hunting, you know, a trail system that they were using that was a little on the edge of the swamp where I could get shot opportunities. I feel like now I'm going to have to kind of move and press the envelope a little bit 
and get a little further into the swamp and, and, and set up to get, to get my opportunities. Because truthfully, that's kind of even the does that I'd seen. That was, that's been where I've seen them. They've been hanging much closer in the, in the brush than they had, uh, and then they had last year. And so I ended up making my way to my, my tree at the end of the, at the end of all of that and got set up and then did have an opportunity at a doe. And, um, it's a blessing and a curse. This, this piece has, you know, it's close to a road and there's some houses nearby and there was someone running a generator at their house and there was some, still some road noise and stuff like that. So you can get away with a little bit of noise in this particular piece while you're in your stand. Cause you're always going to have a little bit of ambient noise around you. And that's what I had yesterday. Um, and so I had this doe at like 23 yards and she passed through this. I had a small window where I could take a shot and, uh, I was at full draw I think it was, it was for over a minute that I was holding full draw cause she was moving and then she stopped and browsed. And then when she finally hit the opening, uh, I, I, I mouth bleated at her and she never heard me. And I literally had that small window to stop her and she didn't stop and started quartering away. And that was it. So I've had two opportunities to, to fill the freezer with some freezer meat and, uh, just couldn't quite get it done. Um, and then, you know, even though look this weekend it was, I was at, you know, full draw twice on two different does and, um, you know, or heard, you know, what might be the bucket I was after doing some grunting and some sparring Saturday morning. And then I heard this super deep kind of guttural, uh, uh, grunt while I was in the swamp and it was right around, I don't know, probably six o'clock ish. And I mean, it was noticeable. It was one of those ones where you stop and you take notice. Like it wasn't like, Oh, there's just, you know, some deer over there, some young deer. It was like, it was like, no, listen to me. And then Maybe five minutes later, there's this uh, little spike that come out, you know, uh, from I guess it would be the south of the of the swamp, exactly from where I heard that grunt. And there was no way that young deer made that sound. And he came in all mousy, ears were back, really kind of checking things out. Um, I had a great wind, so there was no way he was catching me at all. Um, and he was actually coming in below how where I came in, so he wasn't catching my ground scent or anything. And he worked his way in super mousy. And then, uh, he stopped like right in front of me, right in front of my stand or right in front of the tree that I was in and milled around there for a little bit. Then he walked back to where he came from and then kind of looped around and, and went behind me and, and went off. And as he was moving off, I heard the grunt yet again. So I don't know if maybe that was the deer that I kicked up and he ended up going back to bed. Maybe I should have tried the old DeQuisto bump and dump and maybe would have got it done. Who knows? Um, but that was essentially the end of, end of the night. So I filmed him for a little while. He moved on. Then I got down and, and moved out and didn't bump any deer. And then I've had it happen a couple times this, this year already. It was like the, the gods raining down upon me again and it rained today. So should wash everything away that, uh, that had been laid down. And I got a cell camera picture of deer moving at like 1030 today. So, uh, obviously my, you know, my existence in there or my hunt in there has done nothing to deter the deer as if, as if I'd never been there. And then I got a nice rain today that kind of took care of any, any remnants from, uh, from me hiking in and out. So that was basically my hunts over the course of the weekend. Weather looks decent this week. You know, hopefully I'll be able to get out for maybe a morning or two. I got some work travel going on, so I don't know that I'll be able to, but I only have a few, a few short weeks and a handful of hunts more here in Pennsylvania in, in October to try to make something happen and then I'll be on my way to Iowa. But that's pretty much my my whitetail update for this week. Uh and we'll get going to the show here. So have a cool show uh for you today. This is the third installment, part number three of uh my conversation with Don Higgins and what you've heard previously if you've listened to the previous two DIY reports I did with him. 
if you haven't, I'd go back and check those out. But we did his postseason and his preseason kind of approach to killing big deer. You know, Don is very methodical, uh, very detail-oriented guy, especially when it comes to deer hunting and probably just in general in, in all aspects of his life. But but in this particular instance, as it applies to him hunting whitetails, and uh, this section here, we actually dive into his approach during the season, you know, because I'm always interested in what guys do that are good at getting on deer, um, you know, consistently, how they kind of approach their season, how adaptable are they, how uh, beholden to a plan are they, and just the small things that they pick up on while they're hunting that tell them, you know, when to make a move, when to kind of play it cool, and, and just all those kinds of things. So that's what I talked to Don about during this session. And he, of course, shares a, a bunch of great infos. He always does. So as always, thank you all for listening. And I hope you guys enjoy. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Truth from the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. And this is the third and final installment with our good friend, Mr. Don Higgins. How you doing, sir? Great. How are you? I'm good, man. I'm hanging. I'm hanging in there. We're hanging tough. We're talking. We're, we're talking. How could I, I? I'm having a great night. I'm talking deer with Don Higgins. So I don't know that my night could get much better than that. Well, I'm always ready to talk deer. <laughs> right. It's yeah. that's for sure, man. It's a. Uh, it's a. Uh, I always enjoy running into you, whether it's at a trade show or on the podcast or whatever. It's you always have a. You're never at a shortage for uh, for information, and whenever it comes to to deer hunting, just about most any other topic, which is why I always enjoy talking to you. But. Um, <laughs> You know, I know, so this session we're going to be talking about, um, you know, your approach to, you know, getting after a good deer during the actual season. So, so far we've gone through, you know, what you'd like to do directly after the season, you know, the postseason, those winter months. We've talked, you know, most recently about what you like to do in that late spring, early summer, you know, kind of how you're using cameras during that time of year, uh, some mock scrapes and so forth. Uh, and now we're transitioning into you know, the time of year is here. Deer season is here. We're all excited about it, which is just around the corner for us now. But I want to, first question is, is I want to get an understanding, I guess, is, you know, you're hunting a certain caliber of deer, um, that is, uh, you know, that that's a, a mature deer. And, uh, you know, in many instances, you know, world-class type whitetails. And I want to get a sense from you, how much Intel do you like to have on a deer before you feel comfortable making a move on him. You know, it's, I know you play the long game. We talked about this, that you like to look at trail camera data over the course of several years. And you'd mentioned that you'll probably know a deer for at least two years, if not more when you decide to hunt him, you know, but what types of things are you particularly looking for that tells you, okay, it's the time is right now for me to go kill this deer. Well, mainly information I've gathered from previous seasons, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, I've got a pretty good idea of where they're going to be during each stage of the season, um, before they're mature or at least on the hit list. So, uh, you know, most of the bucks I'm targeting are six and a half years old. Um, and and I've watched what they've done when they was four and a half, five and a half. So I know what they're going to do when they're six and a half. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm just sitting there waiting for it to happen instead of being a step behind. Um, prepared and and i'm going to be sitting there waiting on it so i i wanted to ask you this before and i just it, it kind of slipped my mind but you know when, when i'm talking with you we're talking like the upper echelon of mature deer you know when you say six and a half years old you know it's like there's a lot of folks out there you know whether it's my home state in pa or whether it's in michigan or i'd say f- for a lot of places really you know six and a half year old deer they might not ever see 
Um, you know, so that's kind of a, a unicorn for, for, for many of us. But is there something mm-hmm. that you notice, you know, say when a deer goes from three and a half to four and a half and, you know, starts to become a mature deer, do you notice something in their behavior overall whenever they make that transition from, you know, a regular buck to a mature buck? And, and what are those behavior differences that you kind of recognize? Yeah, and I've said for quite a few years now that if I can get a buck, you know, I start watching when they're young through trail camera pictures and such. And if I can get one that I've got interest in, if, I, if he can survive gun season as a three-and-a-half-year-old, mm-hmm. then he's got a good chance to make it to six-and-a-half. Mm-hmm. And I, I just base that on past experience because I've watched a lot of good three-and-a-half-year-olds get shot. Right. But most of the time, when, I, when I'm watching a buck and he's four-and-a-half, most of them are going to make it to five-and-a-half. And if I'm watching them at five-and-a-half, most of them are going to make it to six-and-a-half. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think what it is, when they're three and a half years old, they've got big enough at that point, they're almost like uh, a, a guy in his 20s. You know, he, he's physically, he, he's mature. He's, you know, he, he can hold his own with, with guys of about any age. Right. But he, he don't quite have the mental capacity yet, right. uh, the maturity. So a, a three and a half year old buck, can, he can go somewhere and be the top dog. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in most parts of the country and it might just be a little woodlot here or there or something, but he'll go somewhere where he's the top dog. And, and a lot of times, and, and he's, and he feels confident. He's overconfident, like, the, like a 20 year old, right. Um, you know, thinking he's 10 feet tall and bulletproof right. and it costs a lot of them their lives. And, uh, it's that, that, that's the jump between three and a half and four and a half. If they if they survive it, that's when they become a totally different animal. Hmm. So I I know that you know we talked a little bit about you know details earlier um, in an earlier podcast you know where you were talking about taking notes in the stand and you know that's you know during hunting seasons when you really you know start to think about tweaking your setups and and stuff like that. Are you also taking notes on you know say you have a three and a half year old that you know is an up and comer that, you know, if he makes it through this year, just like you said, like there's a good chance he's going to make it a couple more years. And you know that that deer, if he makes it another year to two years, he's going to make your, make your list. Cause he's just that, that caliber. Do you also take notes on different personality traits and behavior that you see when you get to see them on the hoof at that age range? Um, just so you start to get a, you know, like a profile on that deer of, you know, this deer is aggressive or this deer comes in timid or, you know, whatever, whatever the case, you know, whatever the personality trait of the deer is, do you take notes of those things too? So you kind of have a really good bead, not just on their behavior of how they want to travel and so forth, but also how they might, how they might act when they approach your setup. That way you kind of judge their body language and stuff during the shot opportunity. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. 
Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovis.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Yeah, I do take note of those things, but what's even more important is how a buck traverses across a property, a specific property, because, you know, one buck, he may, he may come through a particular property and he, he wants to use this path or, or this route mm-hmm. and another mature buck, he uses a totally different route coming through. And you know, I noticed that with my trail cameras that I, I can have two trail cameras just a hundred yards apart and I'm getting pictures of totally different bucks <laughs> that I don't get on the other camera. So what I'm really noting is, is how that buck traverses the property where I plan to kill him. And, you know, that helps me get my stands in place and get them in, in the right place and ready ahead of the hunt. Mm-hmm. Are you noticing, in the just as the, in that example, the deer that are, the two cameras that are 100 yards apart, is there, is, are you noticing that one camera's picking up more mature deer and one, one, one camera's picking up more juvenile deer? And is there something that's, you know, driving that difference, do you think? Well... I wouldn't say I've noticed that so much mm-hmm. uh, as much as I've just noticed that, that different bucks will travel through the same area and, and do so differently. Hmm. Okay. Um, and I really don't have an explanation for it because it, it doesn't seem to matter what the wind direction is when a, a you know, buck number one comes through the, the property. I'm going to catch his picture here when buck number two comes through. I'm going to get his picture over there mm-hmm. and I, I haven't been able to put a finger on why mm-hmm. it's just that uh, if I want to target one of those bucks, you know, I, I know that I can't be, you know, where I'm, if I want to target buck number one, I can't be where buck number two is coming through because that's not the route that he uses. Right. Okay. So, you know, I, I know it, we'll use this camera, I guess, situation here as like a, as a, I guess a, a data point here, maybe for this next next question. So, I know we've talked about the fact that you you have a lot of stands that are you know are are, are set you know and trees that are prepared you know and ready to roll. And I know John in an earlier podcast asked you you know if you will do some some run and gun type of type of stuff, and he had talked about it in the in the sense of if you know that maybe you can make a move, you know, and, and get on one of your target deer, you know, the, the guy that you're trying to, trying to put on the ground, will you, you know, use a run and gun set? And you said, yeah, you have some of those that you, that you might do, but you do try to avoid them. So this question is a little bit different though. It's like, so you have all your inventory of your deer and you have your target deer kind of picked out for the year, if, if you will. Um, if there's a, if there's a deer and I know that you know your properties that you hunt like the back of your hand. And so I don't know that this would ever necessarily occur. So this might be a hypothetical, but if a deer showed up, that was the caliber of deer that just basically trumped all the other deer that you were chasing that year. And you thought you had a chance to get on him. Would you, would you make a move on that deer? And if so, how would you go about it? 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> if a giant shows up, I'm going after him. Right. Right. And it's like Trump, you know, I didn't pay much attention to Trump until he was six and a half years old. Really? Because he just wasn't big enough to interest me. And then mm-hmm. when he went from five and a half to six and a half, he put on 30 some inches and Jeez. all of a sudden he's in the one nineties and boom, the chase is on. And I don't know anything about him because he would reload. I'd get his picture every summer in velvet, but he would relocate in the fall mm-hmm. and I had no idea where he went, but, uh, as soon as he exploded, the chase was on and I would do the same with any buck that come along. I'm trying to chase the biggest bucks I can find. Right. Um, you know, age is important part of that equation, but, uh, you know, if a three or four year, I'm not going to shoot a three year old, but if a four year old comes along, that's over 200 inches. Well, I'm chasing. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So, so say this new, this new, uh, this new player shows up, you know, and, and, you know, and maybe you've got a little bit of intel on him, and let's say maybe you don't, right? Maybe just this is a random, a random buck that just shows up. You know, how are mm-hmm. you? Are you doing? I guess I'll just ask it plainly. Like, how are you getting on? How are you getting on this deer? And let's just take the scenario that you have limited information. Maybe you haven't known the deer for two years or so. Maybe maybe this guy you only you got pictures of him maybe early in the year, and then all of a sudden he shows up during hunting season, and you're just noticing that he's that you're either getting them on camera or you're getting or you're seeing them while you're on, you know, while you're in the, in the tree at like 70, 80 yards or 90 yards where you're going to have to make a move. You know, how do you kind of start to close the distance on him? Well, I'm going to hunt him on that property to start with. I'm going to base my stand locations on what other mature bucks in the past have done on that property. Hmm. Okay. And I, I just mentioned that, that some of them will traverse a property different than others, mm-hmm. but there's, there's some generalities, you know, there's a good funnel is a good funnel. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I'm going to use, you know, experience on that property with, with past mature bucks to, to start the, the ball rolling anyway. Right. It, do you find, you know, and this is not necessarily during the season topic, but do you find a, a mature buck terrain feature, let's say, we'll just call it that, is always will will typically be a mature buck terrain feature. So what I mean by that is like if you have, let's say you have a really like a small low spot in a field, right? That maybe there's a larger low spot in the field that majority of the juveniles and does and you know come out of, right? And say there's a smaller, less defined, you know, field saddle type thing, right? And mature bucks that you notice are using that. Do you feel like the, in order to stay away from the, the social pressure and stuff like that, and then, but to still always, to still get the thermal advantage entering that field, they'll, they'll mature bucks will continue to use that one train feature over and over again, regardless of if one gets killed, another one will start to use it just the same. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah it's very common for generation after generation, mature bucks to, to traverse a property the same way. But, uh, you know, what I was referring to earlier was subtle differences, you know, mm-hmm. there, there may be a hardwood ridge or something where one buck, you know, travels down it on one side or another one does on the other. But, uh, when you start getting to those pinch points and such, most of them are coming through there. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So I want to, I want to transition here and talk, a little bit of like tactic and approach kind of uh, scenario. So 
let's take early season tactics and, and approach. You know, how does for you for for you know Don Higgins hunting a mature deer? How does your early season approach you know differ from your rut you know approach? And and those two yet differ from your late season approach. Is or are there some things that you do in each that are that are pretty you know are are similar? And what are the things that are in each set uh, each part of the season that are drastically different? Well, during the early season, I'm hunting food sources, but I want to I want to hunt close to the bedding cover too. I mean, if you've got thick bedding cover that comes right to the food source, I mean that's where you want to be. Um, you want to get as close to that bedded buck as possible without busting. Mm-hmm. And the closer you can be to where he's bedded, the better your odds of success. And the key is uh, a wind direction, you know, that'll allow you to do that and not be detected. Mm-hmm. Um, during the rut, I love the downwind edge of thick bedding areas. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, the bucks just love to run those downwind edges of thick bedding areas. And uh, forget the sign, just get on the downwind edge. Mm-hmm. That's what I do during the rut. During the late season, it's all geared towards food and weather. I want to be close to those hot food sources that are undisturbed as far as hunting pressure goes. And I want to hunt them afternoons only. And uh, I want to do it when the weather's at its absolute worst. Right. Oh, yeah, I remember we were talking about that one other time before where you had said you want the nasty freezing rain minus temperatures blowing like <laughs> most of the days that no one else yeah, wants to be yeah. out are the days you want to be in the worse it is the better it is right now what about you know how do you feel about scrapes and hunting scrapes i mean do you ever do you ever set up on on those or do you you know or do, are you usually always steering kind of clear of those areas and maybe you're hunting uh maybe you're hunting a terrain feature that's that's near like a primary scrape area you know what's your kind of hunting approach with scrapes uh, I, I hunted scrapes a lot in years past and never had a whole lot of luck. Mm-hmm. Um, once I forgot about the sign and started hunting terrain and the wind, um, my success skyrocketed. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that the scrape is a bad idea. All right, folks, sorry about that. We had a little technical difficulty here. We Things were running too smoothly. It was a, it was a bound to have a hiccup here. So, But we're jumping back in here with Don Higgins. Uh, the next question, Don, I wanted to ask you was, what I was starting to ask was around the October lull or the um, that, that time period. You know, there's a lot of debate, a lot of conversation people have around whether the lull is actually real, you know, whether it's just you know more so food sources are changing because scientific data seems to suggest that deer ramp up their movement throughout the course of the year beginning, you know, late summer-ish. So what are your thoughts on the October lull, factor fiction, and how do you hunt that time of year? Well, I have a hard time buying it simply because I've killed probably at least a half a dozen (laughs) good bucks in mid-October. Right. And uh, Smokey and Trump two years ago, a perfect example, I shot Smokey on October 15th and Trump on the 19th. And, uh, I've shot, I think, uh, I think I've shot three different bucks on October 15th, good mm-hmm. ones. Wow. Um, so I have a hard time buying them. My theory is that a lot, you know, in most states or a lot of states, 
archery season opens about the first of October. At least it does in my home state of Illinois, and I know several others. So, you know, the first of October, guys are, are getting out there hunting, and they're they're starting to put some pressure on their property. And a couple weeks in, you know, they've they've hunted a few times, and and I think they pressured their stands and they pressured their hunting areas, and the deer get on to them a little bit. Well, mm-hmm. then. So uh, they shift gears, maybe move their stands or have other stands. They start hunting around the rut. They start seeing those deer again. Um, I know that's not 100% all of it, mm-hmm. uh, but I think that is one factor. And then you, you've got uh, food sources changing where, you know, maybe crops get harvested and acorns start dropping, things like that. So the deer change their patterns a little bit in mid-October. Right. So where, what about, you know, a lot of guys will think that it's, that there's too much to it. Right. So a lot of guys will avoid morning hunts in October as well. Do you, are you, will you hunt mornings or are you, you more of an evening hunter when, in, during, uh, during the uh, month of October? I never hunt mornings in October. No, never. And I mean, I haven't hunted an October morning and well, I take that back. I, I was trying to do things different with Trump just because he was such a tough buck that I, I did hunt one morning in October when I was after him, but that's probably the only morning in October that I've hunted in 15 years. Right. Now, what about, you know, I, I know for the late season, you like the nasty weather. You know, we've, we talked about that. And I think even on the, like the last podcast we did almost a year ago, we really talked a lot about late season with you. Um, for you know, let's just say like the, the the normal duration of the year minus late season. You know what weather conditions, you know, or I guess what's the hierarchy or priority of weather conditions that you feel is most that you feel most confident in going into a hunt. You know, do you prioritize? You know, of course, wind direction is paramount, but is there a wind speed that you like? Is there a barometric pressure point that you like? You know, what are what are those things that you kind of factor in? Oh, I, I just like temperatures that are cooler than normal. If you can get temperatures that are 10 to 20 degrees below normal for that time of year, no matter if it's the first of October or the middle of January, mm-hmm. um, it increases deer movement. So, I mean, you don't want it too cold. You don't want it brutal cold. There's been a couple of years I can remember where during the middle of the rut in November, we got brutal cold temperatures, snow and ice and everything else, where the temperature was way below what it normally would be, and it just holds the deer up. Mm-hmm. But, uh, if you can get something around 10 to 20 degrees below normal for that time of year, that really increases deer movement. Yeah. Now, do you like a certain wind speed? I know a lot of guys don't like, they want a 10 to 15 mile per hour. They don't want, they don't want five. They don't want a super calm day. They want a little bit of something. How do you feel about that? Uh, I'm exactly the same way. If it's too calm, um, you, you really can't predict which way your sense blowing. Mm-hmm. It just, you know, it's just unpredictable. If it's too strong, well, the the leaves are rustling, the tree leaves and limbs are blowing, and the, I don't think the mature bucks feel near as comfortable moving in those conditions. So, you know, about a 10 to 15 mile an hour steady wind. Yeah. So, you know, and this is, you know, one of the, so two last questions here before we're completely wrapped up with this DIY report, this, this mini series. You know, one is I wanted to talk to you about this, and I was really looking forward to this, you know, asking you about this. is I read an article that you wrote where you talked about discipline. And I know earlier on we talked about, you know, your attention to detail, um, you know, as it's, you know, related to sitting and standing, kind of making sure you're taking notes on everything that's happening. 
Um, but discipline, as you know, you talked about, is a significant key to the success that really separates those who are hunting good bucks and those who are hunting, you know, the you know the upper echelon mature bucks. You know, so I guess I want to ask, what does discipline mean during during the season? Can you give me some examples of what you're kind of referring to? Yeah, you know, for a number of years, I thought what separated the the guys that consistently kill mature bucks from those who just dream about it was passion. I thought the, the guys that were really passionate did whatever it takes to get it done. But recently, in the last year or so, I've realized that it's not passion. There's a lot of passionate deer hunters that are not consistently killing big deer. It's discipline. Discipline's what separates the guys that are getting it done from the guys that want to. Mm-hmm. Discipline, I mean, for example, not hunting a, a stand when the wind's wrong or walking a mile out of your way, an extra mile to get to a stand without disturbing deer when you could take a shorter path and take a chance. Mm-hmm. Um, discipline just causes you to uh, not take chances, I guess, right. um, not burn out good stands. Uh, wait for the time to be right. You know, I can remember back when I was not near as disciplined and, and I, my stands are hung most of them for specific times of the year. Um, you know, like I'll have stands that I want to hunt during the early season, some during the rut, some during the late season. And I can remember back my rut stands, I would think, well, one hunt in October is not going to hurt anything. So I would, they were some of my better stands. I wanted to get in at least one hunt in October and I don't do that anymore. I've become disciplined enough to know that this stand, the best odds of success from this particular stand is during the rut. I'm not going to even go near it in October, no matter what happens. So, um, discipline just causes you to to take that little extra step. And, uh, usually it's not, discipline doesn't cause you to do extra things. It causes you not to do extra things. Right. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot of things we do in life where the more effort and work you put into it, the, the bigger the rewards. And hunting mature bucks is not always like that. Sometimes you can, by going the extra mile, can be counterproductive. Right. And can actually harm your chances of success. So uh, you got to know, you know, when to move, and then you got to be disciplined enough to uh, wait until the time's right. Right. I think, and I don't remember if it was you that said this or if it was just in conversation I was having with someone else or where, where I heard it, but, you know, kind of related to the topic of the idea of discipline, you know, is, you know, if you want to kill more mature deer, you know, and I'm still a work in progress with this, right. Is to be disciplined and understanding that in order to kill more mature deer than you've been killing, right. You need to be willing to step outside your comfort zone a little bit. And what I mean by that is, you know, a guy that can kill a 130 inch deer at this one stand location every year will never kill a booner because he wants to sit that stand because he's had success in that stand year over year. Um, and so sometimes success will kind of breed our own complacency. Um, and then we start to, you know, no longer push ourselves to kind of, you know, or remain disciplined in our pursuit of being as good as we can be. Um, you know, what do you, what do you kind of think of that approach or that idea? Yeah. And actually the blog post where I was, I wrote about discipline. Uh, I said the same thing. I think what Might have been your blog a lot post. of deer hunters, 
Yeah, what holds a lot of deer hunters back from making it to the next level is success. They've been so successful doing things the way they're doing it that they just can't change. They just can't break those habits. And, uh, you know, if you're happy shooting the bucks, you're, you're shooting fine. That's great. But if you want to take it to the next level, that means you have to do something different than what you're doing now. Right. If you keep doing what you're doing, you're going to keep getting what you've been getting. So uh, the success, I, I I fully believe success is what's held a lot of hunters back. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. I would agree with that. And I, you know, it was funny because before you, well, I read that blog post that you that you had written, and it was you know prior to that, I think you put it out sometime. It was either late winter or early spring, and I was in the midst of doing a lot of my scouting and getting a few new public parcels that I wanted to hunt, and started trying to figure them out and stuff because they were all new to me. And it was just kind of the perfect timing for me, honestly, like to have the opportunity to read that because that was one of the things that I was trying to challenge myself to do. And it's just kind of reinforcing that I was making, you know, good choices as far as like trying to grow as a, as a bow hunter and, um, making myself step. I mean, I had some parcels I could have continued to hunt, but I was looking for better deer and I was looking for more opportunities at better deer. And so I was starting to expand and I was exploring new territories and, um, you know, and thus far, you know, fingers crossed, I've been rewarded with some decent trail camera pictures that say I might have some decent deer to, to hunt this year. So, you know, it was that mm-hmm. discipline, but then on untethering myself from areas that I had been successful with in the past, you know, so that was, so that was a good feel. And Hey, I drew an Iowa tag this year too. So that doesn't hurt. Right. So yeah, <laughs> so, that ought to help. But, yeah. You know, I, I, I recently heard a saying that, that fits perfectly here. It's, uh, the the greatest enemy of great is good. Yeah, I hear that. That's uh, people are good, and it keeps them from being great. They they are good, and they get satisfied with good, and it keeps them from being great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's always a fine line, at least for me, of um, you know, the pursuit of being. Um, I'm trying to figure out how to say it. Um, great at the expense of the other things that I cherish. I guess is one way to say. Yep. It you know, mm-hmm. that's always kind of the balancing act, right? Because I always say, you know, I have this saying at work, you know, that I tell people that, you know, put a lot of, look, I, I like my job and I'm, I'm pretty good at my job and I, I enjoy the people I work with, but I always tell people that are, you know, kill themselves at work. I'm like, look, you know, when you're gone, there's nobody going to write on your headstone that you were, that you stayed late this week, you know, and yep. miss time with your family or whatever, um, uh-huh. you know, but your family will remember that. You know, and so I try to take the same approach to hunting where it's like, I love it. I'm passionate about it. I want to be as good as I can possibly be. You know, my goals are, you know, to be better this year than I was last year. And I figure if I stack years on top of years, you know, maybe one day I'll, you know, I'll be, you know, I'll I'll kill a, you know, kill a big deer. That's, you know, something that people would want to talk about or whatever, whatever the case is, not that necessarily that I need that or want that, but just as a frame of reference. Right. But uh-huh. I also don't want to do that at the expense of, um, of my family, you know? And so it's always, right. that, it's always that balancing act. And, and that's also discipline though, too, right? It's like the more disciplined you are, you hunt smarter, you hunt harder and smarter, you know, you hunt hard and you hunt smarter than you've ever hunted. You can have, you can have both of those things. Um, but doing it the hard way, you really probably have to give one or the other up, you know, or yep. give, give a little of, of one to get the other. Um, mm-hmm. So, so with that, you know, I have one last question for you and I'll, I'll let you, I'll let you get going and let you get some sleep. Um, but I heard through the grapevine that one of your goals is to kill a booner on public land. Now I don't want you to give away any of your secrets, 
<laughs> but, but I wanted to get a sense from you how your approach is similar or different from how you go about locating and killing big deer um, on private land, leased land, your own home farm versus, you know, how you're approaching the public space. Well, number one, I've got to be a whole lot more secretive about it. <laughs> I was going to say, so get that, a new, that, get a new truck. <laughs> well, having, having my wife drop me off and things like that. Uh, right. You know, I, there's just no way I can park my truck anymore. Right. Locally. And, um, people just know that if they see my truck, I'm hunting a big deer and, mm-hmm. um, it just gets tougher and tougher. So if someone would see my truck in a public park and, or a public uh, hunting area parked, well, that would just make it 10 times harder. So right. the, the big thing is I'm going to have to be a whole lot more secretive about it. Right. Right. Yeah. Totally, totally hear, I totally hear that. So I won't, I won't press any harder, on yeah. it, but, uh, um, but I look forward to to at one point seeing the pictures of the of that deer when when that does happen because I got the utmost confidence in you. And uh, well, and uh, to be honest, I'm not even really pursuing that too hard at the moment. I've got my eye on. I, I mean, I've got a couple cameras out on public ground now, and mm-hmm. uh, it's going to take the right buck. I'm not just going to go out there and. and use one of my tags on a borderline buck. If right. I find a good one, I'll definitely chase him. Right. Well, I, I look forward to the day that that happens and uh, I look forward to having you back on to talk about it. So, <laughs> well, I hope it happens soon. Right. Well, there you go. But uh, before I let you get going, Don, if you wouldn't mind, um, you know, telling folks out there where they can find out more about you, uh, more about the, uh, your, your consulting and of course your, uh, uh, wildlife, uh, uh products as well. Yeah, uh, my website is HigginsOutdoors.com. Uh, you can learn about my consulting. I also uh, do a class on my property. Um, just started this past spring, but uh, uh, the class is about half indoors and half in the field where we'll go out. And I'll show video footage I've taken right from some of my stands, and then we'll go out and see the stands. Well, you'll see the stands where I've actually shot Boone and Crockett Bucks, so... Uh, you know, it's one thing to read about it. It's one thing to see it on video, but, uh, to go out and stand right under the tree and, and, and see where you just watch the booner get shot on video mm-hmm. and then go out and see it is kind of makes that class unique. I don't think anybody else out there is doing anything like that, right. but, uh, you'll see multiple stands where multiple booners have been shot. And then I'm even going to take the show on the road next spring. I haven't even talked about it on any podcast yet. So I guess you get to break the news. Sweet. Um, I'm going to offer a, it's going to be very similar to the class I give at home, except I'm calling it a, a whitetail challenge. And, uh, we're going to go to a property and students are going to, you know, go out, pick out what they think are the three best stand sites on the property and, and lay it out. And then I'm going to come back and critique what they've done. And, and then I'm going to reveal exactly what I would do if that was my property and why. You know, they're going to be able to ask questions and uh, get just a, you know, a firsthand uh, look, a hands-on class with lessons they can take back to their own property. So I've got a, a property in Iowa where that's going to happen. I'm looking for one out east. Um, I want it to be a property that's not just a slam dunk where everybody that looks at it's going to say the same thing. You know, mm-hmm. I want it to be the right property. Uh, I don't want it too big or too small. I want it to 
uh, one where everybody that shows up can hopefully learn something. Um, but, but that's on my website, Higgins Outdoors, uh, dot com. Um, and then the, uh, real world wildlife products.com, uh, is my business, uh, that I co-own with West Elks food, pot, seed and deer nutrition company. Uh, the products that I use on all my, my own properties. So you can find that on realworldwildlifeproducts.com. Awesome, man. Well, I appreciate you coming on, Don. Uh, you're a class act. I always, always enjoy talking to you. And, uh, I always look forward to, uh, to the next time that I get a chance to run into you. So, uh, until I talk to you next time, uh, have a great deer season. Uh, I hope you get on one of those big deer and, uh, I look forward to talking to you soon. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm willing to do it anytime. Well, you bet. Thanks, man. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank Don for joining me and, of course, thank all of you for listening. If you didn't know, Don has a new podcast that just recently came out. It can be found all the usual places that podcasts are found. If you like learning about killing big whitetails from Don Higgins specifically, you're probably going to want to check that out. And also, give any number of his companies, uh, particularly Real World Wildlife Products, give them a check as well online if you're looking for any food plot, uh, mineral, deer feed needs if you have those needs be sure to check that out if you haven't yet please head over to itunes and leave us a five-star rating and be sure to subscribe to the podcast while we're there or while you're there that'd be super appreciative if you do those two things for me and before i shut this thing down i need to give a big shout out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible tethered exodus outdoor gear skull brew coffee company gumleaf usa boots obsession bows ramcat broadheads trophy taker rests and dead down wind and until next time, we'll see y'all. It takes a special knowing to call a Damaged heads, broken letters. Rationalize yourself in numbers. But I gotta get All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long-sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do-hard-shit hat for those of us who like to embrace micro-dosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear go out there and the fish are where you think they are, any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.